This is the Breaking Bad Advice podcast, the show that is dedicated to helping you stay rational in these irrational times. Here's where I remind you that the following thoughts and conversations are for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Please reach out to your financial professional at Plan Financial to discuss your unique situation and circumstances. All right, well, welcome everybody back to another episode of Breaking Bad Advice. Today's episode will be a part one of a two-part series talking all about debt, the good, the bad, and unfortunately, the really ugly. If you've ever had the TV on or have scrolled through Facebook recently, of course, when it's working, you've more than likely heard about Congress suspending the debt ceiling. And while many have collectively taken a giant sigh of relief, imminent disaster may have been avoided, but something bigger may be brewing. In part one, Isaac and I will discuss corporate debt along with many other debts that households have to deal with today. And stay tuned for part two as we discuss the really ugly use of debt at the federal level and what it could mean for you and your future generations. So Isaac, welcome. Um, it's good to be I, back. I, I want to apologize if I, I may seem a little down today. Uh, Giants baseball season has come to an end. It was a really ugly loss last night, and um, but I, I will say... Since we are talking about debt, it's probably a great thing that the Giants lost because, and my wife will probably be, agree with me because we probably would have gone into debt if the Giants went to the World Series because more than likely we were going to be going. So it, it's probably a good thing. <laughs> so you can thank the umpire for that uh, late, late night call. Exactly. I think my wife might have paid him. We'll see. <laughs> so speaking of household debt, um, let's jump into the, the debt that many households have taken on to uh, today. Across America, and according to the Federal Reserve, uh, and these numbers are from quarter two of this year, uh, total household debt in America has grown to 14.96 trillion, an increase of 2.1 percent from the previous quarter. And of that 14.96 trillion, 10.76 trillion is mortgage debt, and about 4.2 trillion is non-housing related debt, credit cards, car loans, student debt. We would probably say that about 90 percent of that 4.2 trillion is, in fact student loan debt. Yeah, quite a bit. Um, and, you know, I mean, we, when we say trillions of dollars, I think a lot of times it's hard for people to quantify um, exactly what that is. You know, it's it's 12 zeros after the whatever number we give you. Well, it's and today lot. it's like, well, why not? Just another trillion, just That's another true. trillion. It doesn't, it doesn't seem like that big of a number anymore. It's true. A trillion here, a trillion there. Pretty soon we'll be talking about real money, right? <laughs> so, um, yeah, no, this is, and this is good. So, but to give you some context, uh, household debt today is really it's just back approximately to where it was at the credit crisis in 2008. Now, some people may say, well, that's bad because we were in the midst of a crisis at that point. Others may say, well, it's been 12 years. Obviously, they've inflated the money supply. Prices have gone up. Um, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe, you know, we sh would be concerned if it was, you know, $5 trillion higher yeah. or something. Yeah. Um, that's all a debate we can have. But um, I think the important thing to recognize is that uh, in, in terms of what, how can we take this in a positive way, uh, and we, we want to try to do that as best we can, um, because of the lowering of interest rates over the last decade or so, uh, even though total household debt is back up to where it was in 2008, the ability of households to service that debt has actually improved. So uh, going back to the Federal Reserve, in terms of a percentage of disposable income, um, 
the the ability of households to service this debt has actually increased. Uh, back in 2008, it was taking up just to service their debt was taking up about 13% of their disposable income. Today, it's a little bit less than 8%. So that's actually an improvement, um, and it's actually lower than at any time that the Federal Reserve has been keeping the keeping track of this since um, I think 1980. Yeah, and and you mentioned the the lowering of those interest rates too. Uh, that has definitely helped in servicing this debt. It's also helped um, a lot of homeowners. Who, who bought homes over these last uh, you know 15 to 10 years uh, be able to refi on the way down that hasn't it seems like that might be a little bit of a problem for people buying homes today possibly getting into that the, the mortgage debt they are today yeah it's obviously squeezed people who are trying to get into the housing market for those who are already in it they've benefited substantially from from that um, and uh, and that shows obviously in um, you know, people's ability to uh, upgrade their homes, uh, continue to refinance, take that money out and spend it on other things. And that, that definitely affects GDP in the short term because they are out there, you know, spending this money that they've taken out of their home. It does. Exactly. Um, and, and the other, I'd say before we kind of move on, the other positive component to this is that a lot of that, that debt increase over the last 10 years or so has come primarily through mortgages and student loans, which some people might say is better than other forms of debt. Um, now we might quibble over whether a, a college debt is uh, worth it today or not, but um, uh, and and whether you know taking on a mortgage today at today's prices is is worth it or not. But uh, at the end of the day, those are better than say car loans, uh, where you're taking out a loan on a depreciating asset, meaning it's going down in value as soon as you drive it off the lot or credit cards where you're paying exorbitant interest rates most of the time. Uh, and you're, you're really using it for consume consuming, uh, you know, goods. So, yeah. So, I mean, uh, but I think the, 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 you know, so we tried our best to give it a positive spin. So I have a good, good job. Yeah. No, no, I mean, I think there, there are when, when you can look at from the aspect of you're putting some money down on a house, seven, eight years ago, and you do get that appreciation, you are able to do some good with it, whether it's you know transferring that equity to another home. You're able to uh, improve your lifestyle. Yeah. But the bad news is, is that can quickly, very quickly dry up. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's important. So at this point, what we'd like to talk about just a little bit is this idea of what some people refer to as, as the bezel. Um, and it's this idea that, you know, there... That embezzlement um, is where you have a um, obviously it's it's essentially theft, um, but the difference between embezzlement and a lot of other types of, of theft is there's this period of time where the person who's actually stolen the money um, it benefits from it, and the person who's been stolen from doesn't actually uh, he, he's not aware. But uh, but they feel richer. But they feel richer, and so there's a period of time where uh, psychic wealth, what you might call psychic wealth, um, has actually increased. And, um, and this, this is the danger, I think, today when we look at people who have taken on a lot of mortgage debt, um, even student loan debt. Uh, if you have an elevated expectation or an elevated um, evaluation of what it's worth, uh, you might be willing to spend more and to live as if you're wealthier, even though at the end of the day, what you can sell that asset for on the market uh, may decline substantially. Yeah, well, and I think that's the important part, too, is you, you have an asset that you're holding on to. It doesn't mean anything until you actually sell that asset and have cash in your hand. Otherwise, it's it's pointless to say I am now richer and I can go out and spend more money. No, we won't go down this rabbit hole. But you look at cryptocurrencies. There's a lot of crypto billionaires, trillionaires, whatever you want to call them out there. 
well, they don't really have that cash on hand. They, their crypto is maybe worth more, but that could, like a, like the housing market, could quickly go away. <laughs> and it seems to every few months. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> again, we won't go down that, that rabbit hole now. Um, yeah, and, and it's important to note, too, uh, in terms of this, this uh, kind of temporary period where uh, people appear to have more wealth than they actually have, this is actually, I, I would say, intentional. Uh, this has been an economic policy for quite a while, uh, coming down from uh, John Maynard Keynes, uh, you know, nearly a century ago, um, writing that it's important for people to feel wealthier um, because they believe a lot of Keynesians, what we would call Keynesian economists today, believe that um, economic growth comes through increasing consumption. Um, and I, again, that's that's a very simplified way of saying it. But at the end of the day, um, if if we can raise asset prices, people will feel richer, they'll spend more, and that will thus stimulate economic growth. Um, but uh, but that's not that's not really the case, um, you know. Yeah, I, and, and I mean, I feel like that it's a um, great during these times where you know wages are higher, and it's the good times we'll call them. It is important to pay down those debts during those good times, build your savings as well, so that when those bad times come you're prepared for it. And it really just doesn't seem like today, most of America is doing that. In fact, they're doing the opposite. They're saying, hey, asset prices are going to just continue to go higher. So that means we need to spend now before they even go higher. Yeah. Yeah. And that's a dangerous psychological position to be in. Um, and and in, in all fairness to Keynes, he actually said that very thing, uh, that it was important during good times to pay down debt and to even build up reserves. Yeah. Um, but we know human nature is, is not um, going to lend itself to that necessarily. Yeah, well, I mean, there's there's definitely FOMO out there right now. That is for <laughs> exactly. sure. One of the things that I would like to say uh, when it comes to those those high interest rate credit cards, um, w- one of the things we like to do when we have um, new clients coming in is to ask them, you know, what kind of debt do you have right now? You know, and a lot of the times, oh, well, you know, we have six, seven, eight thousand on this credit card, or you know, a few thousand on this credit card. And one of the most important things we tell them before they begin investing is to look at that interest rate. Most of the time, it's over 18%. Sometimes it's close to 25%. And we tell them, you know what? Would What would you say if we can give you an 18 or 25% guaranteed return right now? Oh, yeah, we'd, we'd love that. Pay off those credit cards. <laughs> and and it's not us trying to you know just get them out the door or anything like that. It's that financially, most of the time, I won't say this as a blanket statement, but most of the time, it makes sense to pay off those high interest rate credit cards yeah. and then begin. Yeah, especially in today's low interest rate and what we would say low growth, low return environment, um, you're not going to find a guaranteed rate of return higher than 20, 25%. Yeah. Right? Um, yeah. You might find some assets that you think will, will grow that, that much, but um, you're going to be much more... Um, that's going to be much more speculative in yeah. terms of a credit card. You pay off every dollar you pay off. You're not now paying the credit card company that 18, 20, 25% return. So that's what we mean by a guaranteed return. Um, you're saving that money in a sense, um, rather than paying it in the future. So absolutely. Um, let's transition now to, to corporate debt. And, um, you, you're definitely seeing a lot of uh, debt taken out on the household side, but on the corporate side, we're also seeing the same exact thing. Let's talk about some legitimate good uses of corporate debt and when when we should be seeing that. Yeah, well, I think um, so in terms of 
of corporate debt, we would, I would say that there's, there's a lot of good uses. One obvious use would be if a corporation has a good idea and they're looking to increase productivity and, and their idea will increase productivity, then, um, oftentimes they don't have capital sitting around, um, in, in large amounts. And so in order to, um, increase and, and take advantage of this idea they may have, they need to go out and they need to borrow money. Um, and generally speaking, they're going to go through the banking system. Um, and at least that's how it's been in the past. And a healthy banking system is going to take money from savers. And now it just comes in the form of PPP loan. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it used to be through actual savings. Um, and, and again, I would just go back to the point I made about, uh, Keynesianism saying we, you know, productivity comes through, uh, uh I'm sorry, increased, uh, economic growth comes through consumption. Uh, and that's like, you know, walking into a third world country and, and this poor African tribe sitting there and you say, well, you guys are poor just because you're not spending enough. Like, obviously that's, that's yeah. not the case. Yeah. And everybody recognizes that intuitively really where true economic growth comes from is through people choosing not to consume today and saving it goes into the banking system. The banking system then becomes an intermediary, lends out that money at a certain interest rate. Again, we would call that interest rate for lack of a better, better term, the price of time, um, because the saver is giving up that money for a certain amount of time. And that money then is funneled into productive, uh, processes and, and, um, corporations then can take that money and develop these, uh, what we would say, uh, stages of production that uh, sometimes are further and further away from the end, the end result. And what that does is it increases the productivity in an economy um, and, and raises the overall wealth of everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, And I mean, uh, as you note here that, you know, bank lending has actually uh, been declining over this last quarter. So it it may be something that they're seeing, you know, the, the growth potential out there isn't in fact there. Yeah, bank lending has been very tepid um, for well over a decade now. Uh, there was a, a big boost, obviously, as you mentioned uh, um, last year with the PPP loans, but that was essentially government guaranteed. Yeah. Banks, uh, speaking to bankers that I know, they felt like they were nothing more than a bureaucratic intermediary at that point. There yeah. was no underwriting. Uh, well, I mean, there was, but it was not it was, serious. Yeah, uh, and and a lot of it was was simply they were just there to be the 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 bureaucrats uh, signing off on the paperwork. So yeah. a lot of this went right into right into the, through the banking system. Um, but that was a temporary uh, influx, yeah. and well, uh, we're yeah. back to prior crisis levels of very tepid bank. Yeah, bank and I mean, you, you talk about where those dollars actually went. That were that were given out uh, in the, via the PPP loan, and uh, a lot of them went to unfortunately some stock buybacks, um, you know, right to the bottom line. Not necessarily yeah. uh, keeping doors open, keeping uh, people employed, unfortunately. And so when you talk about that underwriting uh, uh, underwriting process, there, there wasn't one essentially, <laughs> yeah. and um, a lot of this you know money that got printed didn't necessarily need to get printed. Yeah, yeah, exactly, and that and that tendency for those those loans to go into uh, stock buybacks rather than into, as we mentioned prior, rather than into research and development and these these increased stages of production where you can actually increase everybody's welfare. Um, that's been a, a trend now for well over a decade. Just running the numbers, uh, you look at corporate debt as a whole in the non-financial sector. It means not you know banks and other financial intermediaries. Yeah. Uh, over the last decade, has been essentially it's it's gone up almost twofold. Uh, when it was a little over six trillion in 2010, uh, a little over 11 trillion or almost 11 trillion um, in uh, in 2020. So that's an increase of nearly five trillion. And yet, when you look at how much money's gone into stock buybacks, which is basically 
uh, corporations issuing debt and then taking that money and buying their own stock in order to elevate the price of the stock. Um, you, you total that over the, the same decade and it's 5.3 trillion. So you have, again, I'm not saying these are the same dollars. There's a lot of other money and, and things going on. Um, but what it does say is what it does show is that rather than a lot of these corporations taking on debt to increase their productivity, a lot of that is going right into propping up asset prices. Yeah. And, And I mean, that's a great segue to the, the companies that are almost misusing the debt. Um, not directing it to productivity and to to grow um, different aspects of their company. And uh, since we are in October, I guess it is pretty fitting that these companies are zombie companies, in fact. And and that's a term you might have heard recently. Um, you know, many different factors go into determining what makes a, a company a zombie company. Uh, but according to a, a 2020 Bank for International Settlements report, the share of zombie companies has actually increased 4% from the 1980s around 15% in 2017. And I'd venture to say that that number is continuously growing. Yeah, at this point, there's there's good, re- good reason to believe that. Now, if you go back to the 1980s, um, I would argue that you had a much more free market. Um, and so a lot of these zombie companies were relatively frequently liquidated, or they were recapitalized and moved out of that zombie company you know, category. Um, and I apologize, I may have forgot to mention that the definition of this zombie company is basically the inability for them to meet their their uh, current interest payments. They basically can't service that. That's Yeah, that's one. I mean, that's probably the most popular um, uh, most popular characteristic, but there are others um, that that various entities will will utilize. And the quote that you or the the statistic you mentioned a minute ago that was from the Bank for International Settlements, which is a an international it's sort of like the central bank for central banks. Um, yeah. and that may not mean a lot to most people, but it's it's a it's a big research institution um, and uh, and a, and a kind of a big cog in the wheel of the international monetary system. So they uh, they went through and and poured through a bunch of uh, balance sheets of various banks and and various companies. And what they realized is that, yeah, the, the share of zombie companies of the overall corporate landscape has increased quite a bit. So we've gone from 4%, which is, you know, that you're going to always have some companies that are yeah. failing. Yeah. Um, but we've gone to now, you know, 15%. That was in 2017. And today, uh, just based on the, the, the what we would call the interest coverage ratio, which is this idea that your, your uh, revenue can cover your or cannot cover your interest payments. I mean, it'd be, it'd be similar to somebody their wages would not be enough to cover the interest that they've accumulated on their credit card yeah, and mortgages. Yeah, and that doesn't even, yeah, talk about covering any kind of principle. Exactly, yeah. So that's, uh, that's a bare minimum, as we would say, it's the bottom of the barrel, they're scraping the bottom of the barrel to... It, it to is. Really Those, these these companies, that's why they call them zombies, because they're essentially walking dead. They're still open for business, but they're they're essentially out of business, for yeah. lack of a better term. And and that, just based on that interest coverage ratio, that's increased some... Um, I saw one statistic earlier this year, the Russell 3000, which is a... Um, it's an index of U.S. companies, but it's a you know it's a large uh, swath of the U.S. corporate. Almost twenty percent of the Russell three thousand were were zombie companies, um, based on that one statistic. So uh, now that may be an overestimate, but the point is it's growing. And when you have a corporate landscape where one in five companies potentially is um, is not producing, but rather consuming and living almost entirely on debt. Uh, you're not in a in a very healthy economic situation. Yeah, and and in your opinion, I mean, what's the likely scenario to play out with these companies that are already, um, you know, part of this? We'll call them the Walking Dead. 
Um, and there's a ton more likely to follow suit. What what do you think is going to happen with those? Do you think there's going to be a, some kind of great reset? Do you think there's going to be some intervention? In it? Are they going to allow them to fail? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is this is something that's happened over and over throughout history. Uh, the Soviet Union was able to last in their their socialist exploits for nearly seventy years, even though in uh, nineteen twenty, uh, an Austrian economist named Ludwig von Mises proved, I think, in a in a logical fashion that the the socialists um, they could not calculate uh, economic value correctly, and and there's there's lots of reasons for that. And what we have today is we have an an increasingly um, interventionist government policy uh, th- mitigated in, or instituted through the central bank, uh, through the banking system, to try to prop up these companies. Um, and uh, the, because there just seems to be an affinity or an allergy against allowing these companies to fail. That's the ultimate yeah. uh, end for these companies is bankruptcy, liquidation, or, or what we would call recapitalization. It doesn't mean that they all will cease to exist, but certainly prices have to adjust lower. Uh, yeah. That's that's a healthy part of this cleansing process, and the more they try to avoid that, um, I think the worse things are going to get. Um, and, and ironically, uh, we hear a lot about econo- uh, income inequality and economic inequality today. Um, a lot of the people that are um, raising their voices to uh, to cheer on this um, fight against economic inequality are the same ones that are advocating for government intervention that. Um, ironically, it ends up leading to more economic inequality because the more yeah. you prop up these these companies, the more the the what I would say not necessarily capitalists, but those who are um, connected to government entities, those are the ones that benefit the most with their asset prices yeah. remaining high. Well, and you know to try to put one more little positive spin on um, you know corporate debt, it is good to be able to take that debt out to fund good ideas and to be able to say, hey, go take that risk. Now there's a legitimate use for bankruptcy then because you need to be able to have you know people go out there and take risks to be able to create goods and services that people are going to want. But then you need to allow them to fail. Exactly. Because And that's a great thing because uh, creative destruction, yeah. better things are going to come from it. That's when a, when a company fails most of the time, it's simply because that's the market saying, your product's no good, your service is no good, do better. And a lot of times, something better does come along. However, right now we're seeing those companies that are failing, they're just kind of, you know, I guess, zombie. Well, there's a, they're, they're continuing to allow them to function with this cheap, uh, this cheap debt. Yeah. And, uh, and what that does is if these companies are not making profits, then that means that they're, um, what they're producing is, is not adding value to the economy. Yeah. And so actually, they're actually consuming capital. They're actually destroying uh, the capital base of our economy and our real savings. And yeah. so the longer they allow this to continue, actually the worse off everybody is, even though we may, as we talked about earlier, we may all feel a little bit wealthier because of asset prices have increased. Um, at the end of the day, uh, it's doing nobody favors. And that does it for another episode of Breaking Bad Advice. As always, you can find this episode along with the latest newsletters and blogs on planfinancial.com. Until next time, stay safe, stay rational.